Hello, greetings. So glad you've joined us. We hope that you are encouraged for spending some time with us as we consider God's Word. We're so thankful for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And I'm sure you'd agree that there are very few issues that are as complicated and as fraught with emotion and experience as sexuality. And it's, for Christians, a very tragic thing, because there's so many great resources from God regarding sexuality, uh, recognizing that God in Christ, through the Bible and the creation, established a very healthy sexuality, and make many connections between theology and sexuality, that in Genesis chapter 1, man, God made man and woman in his image, male and female, he created them, and the, he, the man left his father and mother, Clinton, was cling to his wife, and the two had become one flesh. Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.24. That God's divine nature is manifest in the creation, Romans 1.18 and 19, and thus seen in man who is made in the image of God. In John 17.20-23, God is one in relational unity. You have the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They are one. They remain distinct persons who mutually dwell each other. And what kind of relationship do we have that most closely approximates the level of unity where there can be mutual indwelling, yet two people remain distinct? It's the relationship between man and woman, who are two but become one flesh. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 19, 4-6. And in Ephesians 5, 31-32, Paul will quote Genesis 2:24 and say that the mystery is profound, it is referring to Christ and the church. So human sexuality is created as something that's good. It has its purpose still in the covenant of marriage of a man and a woman who become one flesh. That glimpse of that a unity, what we call perichoretic unity, that mutual indwelling unity uh, that exists within the Godhead. And that procreation is a consequence of that sexuality. And children are embodied representations of two becoming one flesh. The child taking on characteristics of its uh, mother and father. Uh, and the walking around a diversion of two people in one. And his God made man in his image. And they are called his offspring in Acts 17. And so there's a lot that the Bible says about healthy sexuality, and it connects it powerfully to how we understand ourselves as made in God's image. Unfortunately, our culture looks at sexuality much differently, and looks at very unhealthy behavior as perfectly acceptable, it glories in brokenness. And it's really a counterfeit sexuality that the world is offering. And it's made to seem good and healthy and right and natural and normal, but it's really degraded and broken and impoverished. And we see this especially as, as we have the perfect storm about sexuality in terms of the philosophical forces that have shaped the modern world in contrast to uh, the, the ideas of Christianity. Materialism, modernism, and scientism have succeeded uh, in the form of the sexual revolution to reduce sexuality in American thought to its physical impulse in the culture around us. And let's good for us to spend some time exploring that. What it is, what does it mean, and what God has to say about such things. And there's a very different way that human... We look at humans. You know, we look at The study of humans is, is anthropology. And the Christian anthropology, understanding man is created in the image of God according to the way we would... God would have us understand from Scripture versus the way that the world, the secular anthropology, wants to look at humans uh, very starkly different in terms of sexuality. In Scripture, as we've seen, human sexuality is designed by God as a means by which a man and a woman become one flesh. In the covenant of marriage, that glimpse of that relational unity. And so in Scripture, sexually deviant lust and behavior is deviant because it misdirects sexuality away from the God-honoring role to a more debased and corrupt function in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and Galatians 5. 
But we look at our modern secular culture that has embraced enlightenment rationalism and modernism. There's no room for God in terms of understanding human behavior. Now, sure, a lot of people give lip service to the idea there is a divinity out there and there might be a creator. But for all intents and purposes, the divine and supernatural are ignored. And by embracing scientism, our culture is really embracing materialism. That the only things that can exist are those that can be analyzed and scrutinized. And therefore, sexuality is understood in terms of its physical properties, that which you can actually analyze and scrutinize. On top of all of this, in science, Darwinism has become the primary framework by which anything is explored. And so when sexual behavior is considered as being looked at in Darwinistic terms and theorized in terms of Darwinistic philosophy and reasoning, and uh, perhaps scientists are often trying to be descriptive in how people behave but unfortunately, in our culture, as you'll see, a lot of times what is descriptive becomes considered as prescriptive for behavior and used to justify immoral behavior. In a world without God, but full of a lot of natural forces, the only philosophical refuge is Epicureanism. The idea that everything just a bunch of random atoms crashing into each other, you, you, you're here by chance, and therefore you just need to live the best that you can and to do the least harm to others. And that's really... With a modern twist, what defines our modern sexual ethic? The idea that sexual desires, lusts, and behaviors are, are fine and should be satisfied as long as they're consensual, no one's getting hurt, and they're not perceived as demeaning. And on top of all this, our society has bought into consumerism, very literally. Society conditions its members to look at everything in terms of its pleasurable, utilitarian value as something to consume. It markets products in terms of... Uh, of, of, of pleasurable utilitarian value and therefore gives people a very strong reason to look at their own sexuality and the selection and use of sexual partners in similar terms that it's about pleasurable utilitarian value that you shop for uh, partners like you would shop for something else that you would consume and when you get down to it society will, does not acknowledge God as creator or lord does not see humanity as creating God's image, and therefore see humans as simply overdeveloped apes. And so, by necessity, in modern society, human sexuality must be reduced to its physical impulse. Now, it's been said very crudely by the quote-unquote late, uh, late 20th century prophets of the Bloodhound Gang, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do it on the Discovery Channel. That's very shocking, very offensive, unfortunately very apt. That's kind of the way a lot of young people have been conditioned to view their sexuality. In society, all people seem to care about when it comes to sexual ethics is that it's consensual. I'm not hurting one gives anyone gives very latent permission to do whatever you want as long as everybody's in responsible age and consent to the behavior. And so sex is being treated by people like it's food, drink, or other urges. They itch, they scratch the itch, they move on. That's why hookup culture makes complete sense in our culture. Two people are just using each other to satisfy physical urges. There's no other commitment necessary, and either or both parties can move on at any time. And it's only one step further in quote-unquote commitment from hookup culture to what we, we see often serial monogamy. A series of committed relationships and marriages that last until they get boring or the difficulties become severe. Uh, to love as long, to, to stay together as long as love shall last is, is, is not a really strong bond. And, and once the pleasure is gone, uh, so are spouses, very often. In our culture, pornography is accepted and even commended. After all, you're just satisfying desires and no one's getting hurt. 
as it's being claimed. If you turn on the television, movies, you see all kinds of sexual scenes and various relationships, many of which are not according to God's purposes, and they're consummated that way. Very rarely, if ever, do movies like that explore or consider the fallout from such behavior, where uh, somebody is in a, you know, teenagers are engaging in sexual behavior, but you see uh, leading up to it, maybe some kind of allusion to it, and then it's the next day. You don't see the people having to grapple with what they've just done. Uh, when you have adultery, you don't see the grappling of what they've just done. Uh, a lot of times it's being glorified that, look, this is normal behavior. Look, this is what everybody's doing. Look, this is just one of those rites of passage. And people are given a very jaded view in some senses, but in a very real sense, a very limited and a very propagandistic view that is not consistent with the reality of the full experience. You get the impression from all the media that everyone's having a sex, having a lot of sex, and having sex in all these different ways, and very easy to feel that you're being left out, and that everything people are doing, all these various diverse divergences is now diversity, and it's being promoted as great and healthy. And adulterous behavior is now being justified time and time again as just sex, implicitly arguing. If you're saying it's just sex, what you're really saying is that you can somehow fully divorce the physical sexual behavior, making it just sex, as opposed to the mental and emotional components. And when you look at the sages of culture, so to speak, the scientists, uh, they're using Darwinistic theories and anthropological studies, suggesting humans are not designed for monogamy. They seek more variety, and will come up with all these various explanations for why humans do not uh, use monogamy, that uh, a man is trying to spread his seed and have as many offspring as possible, as many different women as possible. And women uh, are looking for the best genes and the best provider. And if the best genes and best provider aren't the same person, well, go uh, have an affair with the guy with the best genes, and then have the guy who's the best provider raise it. Raise a child. And that's, that's just accepted at all. That makes sense. That's why people do such things. And all of a sudden, now that's being used to justify such behavior. Meanwhile, in all this activity going on, in reality, people feel more isolated, lonely, and unhealthy than ever before. So what are we going to say about the situation we find ourselves in modern culture? Well, what's interesting is that we like to think of these things as new. At least that's the pretension. This is, this is all uncharted territory. This is all freedom. But it's nothing new. The Apostle Paul understood these things and lived in a culture that was not a whole lot different in many respects. In Romans chapter 1, we've been talking about Romans 1. And the reason he's going through what he talks about in Romans 1 is the following. In verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness oppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish minds, hearts were darkened, excuse me, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now when we look at this passage, Paul is accurately 
summarizing and explaining the Gentile cultures of his age. And he sees where they went wrong. They went wrong because they should have seen the hand of the singular creator in how everything exists and in their own nature. But they turned from him. They claimed wisdom, but really were fools. They gave the glory that should have gone to the true creator God to natural forces or creatures. Now, what happens when God is not recognized as a creator? Well, when they didn't honor God as creator, they elevated aspects of creation to divinity. You can no longer see yourselves as being made in the image of the one true creator God, but just as subjects of these various forces or entities. Uh, the winds, the sun, the moon, the rivers, and things like that. Uh, Gentiles, from Babylon to Rome, believed themselves to be subject to the whims of capricious gods who needed them to offer sacrifice so they could eat. And not a few lived in abject terror of the gods that they had believed in. The Greco-Roman pantheon specifically featured humanistic deities who were craven, adulterous, prone to mood swings and devastated anger. By the day of time of Paul, the elite and educated didn't even take them very seriously. Um... And even for those who did, how could those gods prescribe a code of morality? Uh, you hope that most Greeks and Romans had a more ethical life than their gods. And so the gods are compromised ethical figures in, in the stories that are told about them. And so when you look at the way that the Gentiles see the world, they're human beings subject to capricious forces controlled by various gods. Where would you get from that a strong ethical instruction, let alone a healthy sexual ethic? And that's why the conclusion that he begins with God giving them over to the lust of their bodies follows. That is, he continues, that for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. They're just given up to their lusts. And they're, they're given up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You know, we, we, we speak about this primarily in terms of this, you know, exchanging natural for unnatural in Romans 1, 27, but really the whole premise is throughout here. Because what can God do for people who refuse to recognize his authority, do not acknowledge his existence, and do not see themselves in his image? Nothing. Nothing God can do to people like that. So he just gives them over to what they think they want. And so the one strong trend that you see in these cultures is that their sexual license, without restraint, especially among those who were privileged enough to enjoy that opportunity. So if you don't, let I me mean, think about it, if you don't recognize that you are made in the image of the triune God, and you fail to see that human sexuality involves more than two body parts, why not burn in lust for anyone and any, everyone? And so that's why in Greco-Roman culture, if you're a privileged male... You could ex enjoy female companions, a thyroid, prostitutes of either gender, mostly feminine in, in Roman culture, porn a, um, but their wives, not so much. Uh, that was just a constant trend in, in the literature. Not a few Greeks, rap, uh, would get all uh, uh, making beautiful poems uh, about the higher love, they called it, between a man who was called the Erastes and the prepubescent boy, the Aromanos, upon whom he lavished affection, while dismissing the lower love given to women, like in Plato's Symposium. It's a very constant trend. 
So we, we it's, what's so interesting is not the differences, but the similarities. Because what Paul says in Romans one hits home today, because our society has returned from the same place that the Greek Roman culture had fallen into. Now it may be in the name of science and progress. These gods may have different names, but it remains the same pattern. God is not honored as a creator. Man is not seen as made in his image, and therefore man is given over to his lusts. So what's the big problem with it? Why does Paul talk about this so much? We see why in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both of them. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your members or your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute become one's body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Now Paul, uh, it seems, it, it, it's very difficult sometimes with the ancient letters, you don't have quotation marks. But it seems that the Corinthians had perhaps suggested to Paul that uh, all things are lawful for me, and meats for the belly, and belly for meats. And so the idea with those ideas is, okay, you know, we have body parts, we have desires, we should satisfy them, and we're, we're fine doing that. And um, Paul doesn't want Christians to be brought under the power of these things, especially their liberties. So he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Yes, food for the belly, belly for meats, but God's going to destroy them. Okay. And that's why he wants to insist, the body is not made for, you know, we use this word from English, it's actually immoral, it means it's porneia in Greek. It's not meant for that, it's for the, for the Lord. And now he gives context, why is he saying this? Well, he says, if you engage in, inter- in, in intercourse with the prostitute, with the porneia, you become one flesh with her. But if you are a Christian, you're supposed to be one flesh with Christ. And we've got to get out of the physical register with that. that there's a spiritual understanding there. The Paul will warn the Corinthians to flee pornea, flee this sin, because every other sin, he says, you commit outside the body. But the, the, the person who commits pornea is commit sinning against his own body. But we need to recognize as Christians, we're bought the price. That the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us from God, and we must glorify God in our body. And this is well and good, but it really leads to one compelling question that's really hard to answer, and that is, what does Paul mean that porneia, sexual morality, is a sin against the body? Now, normally, a lot of times this, this verse gets talked about, well, sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, the consequences if infidelity is exposed. Now, there's some warrant applications, although plenty of Corinthian wives probably knew their husbands were having sex with prostitutes, but in Greco-Roman society, that's what men did, and it was acceptable. 
it, it, I'm sure it didn't feel good, and I'm sure that it, there was a, a point of resentment and, and plenty of other things, and it was degrading and dehumanizing for the women involved, and so I'm not trying to say that it was a great idea. But culturally, it was just accepted. What are you going to do about it? So there might be something behind it, but it's not Paul's main idea. We see a contrast that every other sin, Paul says, is outside the body. But, and so in various ways, other sins have bearing on other people and are standing before them. So how is pornea sin against our body? Well, it may come back to this idea of what pornea is. We, we've been, I've been using the Greek word. I'm not trying to, to, to confuse anybody, but pornea is very hard to translate. We're going to look at why here. And, and we have the chapter break here. But after glorify God with his body, then talks another thing that Corinthians mentioned. Is it, it is not good to, for man to touch a woman. Uh, but because of pornea, he'll say in verse 2, let each husband have his wife and let each wife have her husband. Uh, man, or you know, those, those terms are interchangeable. And they should give each other their due conjugal rights in verses 3 and 4. So but pornea, though, is, is, is at the core of it, is what you do with a porne. That's why we use that word for prostitute, porne. And what, what do you... What are you doing with a porn at? You're gratifying sexual impulses of the flesh. There's a one-flesh connection. Paul says it here. But there's nothing else. There's no commitment. There's no substance, some sort of relationship. In modern parlance, it's just sex. To participate in pornea meant to gratify that physical sexual impulse without any regard to the mental, emotional dimension of the sexuality relationship. And if you kept doing that, if you kept engaging and satisfying the physical desires independent of the mental and emotional, spiritual elements, it's going to further sever those connections. And so, pornea is a sin against one's body because you're satisfying the physical impulse without regard to these other components, and thus you're degrading healthy sexuality, and it becomes very difficult, or impossible even, to develop healthy sexuality. That's a very important idea, and I want, we want to come back to that. But to come back to that, to, to get to really the core of what we're talking about with this, we need to go on, a on what seems to be a tangent, but it's very, very compelling, and, and a very strange question, perhaps, at this point. What does it mean to be human? What is truly human? It's kind of peculiar logic, because we've tended to use human as a synonym for failure and limitation. We're, we're only human. To err is human. Okay? And when we do that, we're really emphasizing the fallible nature of humanity. But, let's go back in the idea in the Bible that God made man and woman his own image. Who is man that you care for, the son of man that you esteem him? And yet you've made him a little lower than the angels in the psalm. They have failures and limitations. A lot of those failures and limitations are about the, because of sin and death and participation in the desires of the world in Romans 5 and 1 John 2. And so there's a, a way in which if the more we reflect the image of God, the more truly human we would be. The less we, we reflect the, the image of God, the less human, and, and therefore the more animal we might be. We can still see something like the word humanitarianism. What, what does it mean to be a humanitarian? It means you care about your fellow human. That, that you're emphasizing those characteristics of hu humans that distinguish them from the lower apes, so to speak. And it generally involves virtues that are consistent with what Christians would consider godliness. And so in this sense, Jesus truly is the Son of Man. 
the ultimate human who lived in a more human way than the rest of us. Because he was in the image of God, he reflected God's character, was tempted in all points like we are, yet was without sin. Colossians 1.15 and Hebrews 4.15. And therefore, when it comes to sexuality, a more godly understanding and usage of sexuality, therefore, is more human. And a less godly understanding and use of sexuality, therefore, is less human. So when we come back now to this idea we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 6, that you're, when you commit porneia, you're, you're sinning against the body. What's going on is in many ways you are dehumanizing yourself when you participate in sexually deviant behavior. Is you're not consistent with what gets you close to the image of God in you. And this is very important. The idea that promiscuous sexual behavior can be fun without any downsides is a satanic lie. Because if you have sex with people with whom you have no meaningful connection, you're going to have lasting mental and emotional wounds. You might have immediate regret and guilt after doing it. You might have relationship challenges when you get to the point of seeking healthy sexual relationships in the commitment of marriage where a husband or wife may feel guilt because of the things they've done in the past. They may feel more inhibited because of shame, because of what they've done in the past. Uh, there are plenty of times where people have experienced this because of the trauma of the sexual experiences in which they participated, even when they were consensual. And the more that somebody engages in it, the harder it is for that person to associate a healthy physical sexuality with the physical, the spiritual, emotional, uh, intimate side of it, and to make that work holistically. It becomes very hard to do that. And as bad as, as that is, pornography is even worse. Because beyond the fact that you're treating the person on the screen as a dehumanized object, pixels on a screen, watching pornography is not only divorcing uh, the things we're just talking about, the, the the emotional components and the and the and the relational components it, it, it is severed it's just the even the mental force of arousal are being divorced from and separated from the act of connecting what we're finding is that people who use a lot of porn have worn down their brains arousal mechanisms that such people, when they find themselves an opportunity to have actual sexual intercourse, find it very difficult to perform and enjoy without thinking about pornography, if they can perform at all. And in their pornography habits, tend to get more violent and degrading forms of pornography in order to obtain the same stimulus response. That the, what they used to watch isn't, isn't providing that stimulus response, so they have to get and go down very dark holes that they would never have imagined before. Darker depths. And there's no way of making that a pun, I think. Not making that a pun. So, we're just going to go with it. Apologies. What's going on is that sex, when reduced to that physical impulse, it becomes subhuman. It becomes very deleterious and, and, and harmful to healthy sexuality. Please, friend, do not buy into that sexual libertarian lie. Sexual immorality is not a victimless behavior. If you're having sex with someone and that person's agreed to have sex with you, but you don't have the right to have sex with that person, if you're using pornography and think that always being hurt, you're hurting yourself. You are the victim. 
when you consume pornography and you participate in insulting behavior, you pour sin against yourself. Because you're giving in to animal lust according to the fashion of the world. You're leaving long-lasting scars of guilt and regret. You're hindering yourself from being able to form healthy sexual relationships with your spouse by covenant. Yes, consent is a very necessary element of human sexuality, but it is not sufficient for healthy sexuality. Healthy sexuality demands that we respect the covenant and respect the boundaries uh, that every powerful force has been made to be controlled in, and that is in the marriage covenant between a man and a woman whom God has bound in marriage. And it's only in that, 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 that confines that it can lead to that physical, mental, and emotional connection uh, and intimacy that allows for a much deeper relationship with the spouse and to appreciate that relational unity uh, for which we've been seeking and which is manifest in God. So we see what happens because our culture has reduced sex to physical impulse. That uh, All these social forces over the past few 50 years that have all pulled in this direction. And, and by doing so, our culture has gone right back to where the Greeks and Romans were uh, 2,000 years ago. When God is not honored as creator, people are given over their desires because there's nothing he can do for them. When man has no reason to see himself as made in God's image, he has little, uh, little stopping him from just exercising his sexual desires as he wants. But, when you do that, and you participate in sexual behavior, you're dehumanizing yourself. You're giving in to carnal lusts without regard to how you've been made in God's image. When you do that, you sin against yourself. You're damaged and destroying the possibility for a healthy sexual relationship, and you're wallowing in degradation. That is why we must strive to be fully human, to fully reflect God's image by glorifying God in our bodies. And there's any way we can help you in that, if you have some questions about some of the things that we've said, you'd like to talk about them further, maybe like talk more about what it means to, be, to follow Jesus and become a Christian, or maybe you just need to talk, have a prayer request, if there's any way I can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Uh, or if you'd like to meet with us or, or find out more about the Venture to Christ, you can look us up at venturechurchchrist.org. Also find us on social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.